You're listening to Afro-Canadian Connection presents Hip Hop from the North with your host Alea, taking you through decades of Canadian hip hop with interviews from some of the biggest names in Canadian black music and how each decade impacted Canada's music scene. But first, we'll take you back to hip hop's birthplace. The year was 1973 in the Bronx, New York, when DJ Cool Herc hosted a back-to-school party with his sister Cindy, now known as hip-hop's first party, and the rest is history. Radio personality Mastermind says, Cool Herc made a huge contribution to hip-hop. The person that they call the godfather of hip-hop, who is Cool Herc, he's from Jamaica, and they're saying he created hip-hop based off of um, the stuff that he had seen um, with the sound systems and the sound clashes and all that stuff in Jamaica. He obviously is in New York. Um, but that right there in and of itself shows you how connected Caribbean culture is with hip hop, right? In, in reggae, they call the, the MC, the DJ, obviously in rapping, the MC is the, the, the person on the mic and the DJ spins the record. Um, you know, in, in dance hall, the sound man, is the guy, the DJ who plays the records or whatever does the music, but it's so connected and, and deep rooted. One of hip hop's first supergroups, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five formed in 1978. The group was known for its lyrically conscious themes such as poverty, crime in the community, and the DJing techniques of Grandmaster Flash. The group gained popularity locally, but hip-hop didn't become mainstream until 1979 with the help of singer and record executive Sylvia Robinson, who formed Sugar Hill Records. Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang was the first rap song to break the top 40 on the Billboard Hot 100 list. It's known as the first international hip-hop hit and a number one song at the time. Hip-hop only continued to grow from there, though. Over the next two decades, the musical genre became popular in communities across the U.S. and internationally. Hip-hop is now one of the most popular and highest-selling music genres worldwide. Most people know about the success of Canadian hip-hop today because of Drake, Tory Lanez, and Nav as they made their stamp on hip-hop as a whole. But Canadian hip-hop reached international prominence well before that. Mastermind touches on Toronto's influences from south of the border. Being in Toronto, we were heavily, heavily influenced by New York and the tri-state area. So New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia. And so that's kind of the artists that we were into. So, you know, Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. And, um, you know, if you want to go to Philadelphia, I mentioned Steady B, but there would also be, I can't even think, uh, there was somebody on the tip of my tongue, like Schooly D. Obviously, LL Cool J would have been a big artist, like probably if not one of the biggest um, from that era. Run DMC, et cetera, like those type of artists. So whoever was big then and even underground and stuff, because again, you got to remember that it hip hop was in such of its infancy state back then you you're getting hip-hop either through a couple hour weekend mix show in new york city or philly or whatever um or you were buying it 
um, from, you know, 12 inches in those vinyl record stores and, and stuff like that. Uh, and breakdancing obviously was a big part of it too. Like breakdance culture was very popular and it started getting commercial and that helped also um, expand um, hip hop because then breaking movies started happening, right? So Hollywood was taking notice and they realized the popularity of it. Right. Advertising started recognizing the popularity of it, including that type of stuff and in, in how they advertise. Big brands like, you know, Pepsi and McDonald's and, and big companies were using, you know, breaking in, in a roundabout way, hip hop to help advertise. The big artists back then, you know, again, the LLs, the Run DMCs, the Houdinis, the, you know, the, the, those are the artists. And as the music, you know, as new artists started coming in, it, it evolved and you would, you know, grow with them. Hip hop traveled north in the 1980s. At the time, popular Canadian hip hop acts like Mishimi and the Dream Warriors started in Toronto's underground scene. Mastermind mentions the importance of Caribbean sound in Toronto. Black music parties back then, there would be hip hop, it would be R&B and it would be reggae. Those were the three genres that would get played at these parties. Um, again, with the sound systems, the multiple DJs, the MCs, all of that. It was so integrated and, um, and so intertwined. And again, when um, you fast forward to, you know, our um, black music radio station starting, of course, reggae has to be involved and Caribbean culture has to be involved. Um, and they have to find a, a balance, right? Because it's like, again, for me, hip hop and R&B, you know, you're like, oh, I, I listen to this station, these stations in the States, and this is what I want to hear. And they weren't really playing reggae and stuff, but reggae was always a part of hip hop. Like, I mean, even in um, the mid to late 80s, you know, with groups like Boogie Down Productions, they had a huge um, reggae influence in their music and stuff. And when they actually signed Mishy Me and started working with Mishy Me, Mishy Me, you know, being a Jamaican, she had a huge Caribbean sound. Dream Warriors had Caribbean sounds. Throughout the 90s, the Dream Warriors and Ghetto Concept won Juno Awards for Rap Recording of the Year various times, while the first Canadian female rap artist, Mishi Mi, became the first Canadian MC to sign a major record deal in the U.S. The genre didn't gain popularity with the mainstream Canadian audience until the year 1989, when Maestro Fresh West released his hit song, Let Your Backbone Slide. It was the first Canadian hip-hop song to go gold. Maestro would go on to be named the Canadian Godfather of Rap. He was nominated for three Juno Awards and won the category of Best Hip-Hop Video at the Much Music Awards. Shaw reflects on what the music video was to him. Definitely remember that Backbone Slide was like the song, the video. I, I think I even lied to my friend and told him that I was in the video. Like, I would be like, I'm that guy dancing over there, but I clearly wasn't. Uh, but like, you know, like I wanted to be a part of it. Socrates shares how Maestro and Mishi had an impact on him while he was growing up. So Wes was the hero of mine in, when I was in uh, uh, junior high. You know, I used to dance and when Backbone Slide had come on, it's like that circle will open up and go, 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 go. 
Chub Rock, we we killed Maestro when that would come on. It would it would change the, the dance, and uh, and Missy played that played the, that exact same role, even in a different way. Where we were proud of her because um, the connection with the whole Ladies First movement with Queen Latifah and getting signed to First Priority Music with Audio Two um, and being respected. Uh, it gave us an, it gave us at least two to two to a few folks to look up to to say, you know what, they're doing it. Maybe when when we get come of age, if we try, maybe we can do it, too. In 2019, Let Your Backbone Slide was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame and is the first and only rap song to have done so. But before the success of Let Your Backbone Slide, Mastermind remembers the rise of Maestro Fresh West in the late 80s. Wes was actually in a group before he he went solo. He was in a group called Vision, um, him and his cousin. They were like two MCs out of Scarborough, and he was known as Melody MC. His partner was known as Ebony MC. And I was introduced to, to Wes. Um, he, he was a bit of a battle rapper. And I wouldn't necessarily say he had a New York sound, but again, there was definitely some of in, some of that influence in how he wrote that, 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 you know, we were very um, heavy on lyrics and, and, and bars. And that's why, you know, him being a battle rapper, um, um, you know, and I would hear him on the radio, they would play tapes of his battles and things like that. And then um, because I had my radio show um, at CHRY before he got his record deal, um, when he then kind of rebranded himself as Maestro Fresh West um, and my show being, I think it was at the time, the sec, the only, only the second hip hop show in the city. Um, it was an outlet for artists potentially to be heard. And so they brought me um, his music before he got his record deal. So, I mean, I had let your backbone slide before it came out in 89 as a record and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, you know, I had, I didn't know it was going to be, you know, I didn't feel like it was going to be that huge of a, success as big as of a success as it was you can't really anticipate especially back then you know what i mean you can't anticipate or or um predict that it's going to be that big but yeah it was it, it, he ended up becoming such a superstar and it was really cool like knowing where he came from um knowing that you were part of that journey before he got there um and that you helped in that journey and um you know me and me and wes you know, became friends back then, obviously he was a little older than me, but still being in the scene and being around and obviously being one of the DJs that is playing his music and stuff, we all become friends. We all become industry associates. Um, you know, I also, you know, rapped and produced and stuff. So I was, you know, when he was working on his second album, I was producing records at times. So I went in the studio with him a few times and we made records for a second album. They didn't end up making the cut or whatever, but you know, all these, because the scene was so small, all of our relationships, they were, they were pretty, you, if you were in the industry, so to speak, you pretty much knew everybody, you know what I mean? So um, it was very cool to see him, the dream warriors, Mishy me, um, you know, all these local artists that were getting notoriety outside of Canada. It was, it was very cool because you never really thought that that would, you know, we had this long-term, long-time stigma of like, you know, we liked our own shit, but the audience almost didn't like the fan base didn't like it. So we knew we had talent. The industry knew we had talent, but it just didn't connect. But a lot of that has to do with 
you know, the lack of support from the actual industry, the, the same way, you know, the industry force feeds you pop music and rock music and country music from Canadian artists. They don't do that same force feeding when it comes to black music and, and hip hop and R and B and all the things that um, our scene and our culture revolves around. So it feels, it feels like we're at a disadvantage. We've got to fight for ourselves. Maestro's breakthrough in Canadian hip-hop was an inspiration for the next acts of the early 90s. Shaw-Claire talks about Maestro's influence on him. I remember I tell Maestro this story all the time. I actually have it in a song that's coming out. When I was growing up on Markham Road, and Cut Creator was just over the bridge. I used to live over at uh, 421 Markham Road, and then you had to go over the train bridge. And Cut Creator, which was one of the first places where, you know, like where... Barbers, that's an art form where, you know, you can put stuff in your head. Like it was a barbershop that did that. You know, it was country. Everybody went there. Uh, and uh, so my son would go there. And I remember walking over the bridge and all I saw was these green pathfinders and all these people jumping out of the uh, the pathfinders with orange dope state jackets. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's my story right there. That's my story right over there. And, you know, and I'm just like watching. Uh, and then even I have so much history with my story. Um, me and my best friend back then. Uh, and he was like a serious, like Italian, Italian, like back, like nineties, Italian, long hair, the boots with the silver on the front tip jacket off the shoulders. Who are you talking to? So we went, my first concert, me and him, we went to Canada's Wonderland, Kinswood theater. He went to see Stevie B. I went to see Maestro Fresh West because they were on the same bill. And imagine here comes. Italian Stallion and B-Boy Blake over here walking into the place together as friends. And he's literally going for Stevie B and I'm going for Maestro. And we went to the same concert. So yeah, Maestro has a huge impact on me. Rapper producer Solitaire also looked up to Maestro and explains how listening to him on the radio inspired him. Maestro was really the first that was from, uh, from the perspective of us growing up was like, on par with American artists. He had a video, his song was on the radio, he was selling units, people were talking about him. And it was, you know, that was, I would say the first iconic artist that I recognized as a youth from from my city. And, you know, inspired obviously like a whole generation. College radio and on-air TV personalities encourage new and up-and-coming artists of the next generation. Ron Nelson was one of the first on-air radio personalities to create a radio show that exclusively played Black music in 1983. The show was called The Fantastic Voyage and aired on Ryerson University's affiliate station, CKLN-FM. Prior to this, you'd only be able to listen to Buffalo, New York's 93.7 WBLK on the radio. But College Radio gave local artists recognition in Canada. Shows like Mastermind Street Jam on Energy 108 and The Power Move, hosted by DJX on CKLN-FM, were some of the most popular hip-hop shows in Toronto. Rapper Socrates explains the importance of hip-hop and R&B being played through airwaves on Saturdays in the city. Every Saturday was like the Mecca, of, was the Mecca day for like the pilgrimage to hip-hop in Toronto. Because in the afternoon, I've said this before, in the afternoon, you start with DJX on the Power Move show from 1 to 4. 
on Saturday on CKLN. Take a break. Then around five o'clock on Energy 108, Mastermind had come on. And that was our first commercial uh, hip hop show, right? Because all the others were college. Mastermind was the first to go commercial radio at Energy 108. So that was like five to seven on a Saturday. Then we take a break and then boom, it's the master plan show at, uh, at 1030 or 10 o'clock on uh, CIUT. You see what I'm saying? So the, you, can, you can imagine how pivotal these DJs and sounds were in us, us getting the music from the rest of the world, but also getting an opportunity to have our music play. The Mastermind is the first guy to play my music on commercial radio. Huge impact. I was number, he, had, he had a top five. He would run a top five. And when I, when I made, I made uh, number two, and I was second to Nas, and KRS was in third place. So you can imagine what that does for a kid in high school, seeing a chart like that and being put up there with that absolute greatest, huge impact. You talk about impact. I mean, Mastermind didn't even have to A&R my record, which was absolutely amazing. He, he had already done enough work as a DJ and, and DJ X and, and Power. And all the guys that, that have that have been uh, supporting it. Adrian King, better known as DJ X, started his radio show, The Power Move, after meeting his mentor and friend. My mother was like, was going out with this guy in the 80s and his daughter was friends with somebody, well, was friends with a guy that was doing a radio show named Ron Nelson um, at CKLM. And because I was so deep into the music and into DJing and stuff like that, um, this friend thought that I should meet this person. Um, and so that was it. Like he just took me to, to meet them. Um, and um, yeah, that's kind of like how it came together, like in terms of radio. So I, yeah, I mean, I, I met him and I guess like, like people like our friends wanted us to work together like the family you know members kind of like oh you guys should work together you have common interest and he was like already on the radio and kind of big and like you know doing his thing the show was pretty big and uh, he kind of laughed like who's this kid like you know what i mean like what am i gonna do with this kid um anyways um within no time at all i was um ended up on his show with him um in a roundabout way but like yeah i was such a crazy dj back then like i would practice like eight ten hours a day like so like like i was untouchable you know what i mean like i just was so serious that like it would be hard to keep up with me so i became really really good and um just people were wanting me to dj on their shows and stuff i actually started out at chry which is now by 105.5 um, which used to be York University's radio station. Um, so I started there with a, with Mastermind, and um, and then I ended up going to Ron Nelson's show and then eventually taking that show over at CKLN. Adrian explains how the Power Move was created with the help of Ron Nelson. He left that radio show to me, and when he left, he was like, you need to name it your own thing and create your own legacy and make it yours. And um, he was like, do you have a name for the show? And I was like, no, I don't know what I'm going to name it. And he's like, you should name it The Power Move. 
And I was like, oh, that's dope. Like, so that's how that happened. And basically he came up with that because he used to really like um, Public Enemy. And um, Public Enemy, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where he got the name from. And I, I just thought it was a cool name. I was not a Public Enemy fan though, but I, um, not that I wasn't a fan, I just didn't love them as much as I loved other stuff. Um, and yeah, so that's where the name came from. Aside from college radio, Canadians gained access to musical television stations like Much Music. Former Much Music DJ Michael Williams hosted shows like Pepsi Power Hour and Soul in the City before helping to craft a new show dedicated to hip-hop called Rap City. Much Music's Rap City debuted in September 1989, with Michael as the show's first host. But the next host wouldn't come until years later after Michael's departure. I had uh, been working at City TV already uh, for a few years. And I was, uh, I was this, at this point, I was finished university and I was working on a show called Breakfast Television. I was on the morning show with Breakfast Television and Lunch Television. <clears throat> I started another show called Lunch Television. So I was the on-air personality slash floor director for both shows. Um, so I had a presence at City TV already. And my predecessor, who used to host a show before me, uh, Michael Williams, uh, he, I grew up watching him host Rap City, and he was the VJ in Much Music. He had left. He was leaving Much, and so he had, he had left. And so there was no host on Rap City for a couple of years. And so, um, you know, it was always something that I wanted to do and uh, be a part of. And we had uh, our company Christmas party Um and, uh, you know, back in the day, we used to have, you know, people could, would perform at our Christmas parties. And uh, my boy, Brian, he wrote a, a, a BT rap, a city TV rap song. He said, oh, let's perform it at the Christmas party. I'm like, all right, I'm down. So we performed at the Christmas party. It was a big hit. And that's kind of when I, we, I got on the radar and I got Moses Zimmer's attention. And, um, and I pitched to Moses about, listen, you know, there's, there's no host for Rap City. You know, um, I would I would love to do that. And um, I got blessed with the opportunity to do that part time. So I because I was already doing breakfast television, I was I was breakfast television, lunch television. And then I got to do Rap City as a part time gig as, as according to, you know, my my bosses at Much Music. Oliver Walters is from Scarborough and went to journalism school at Ryerson University due to his childhood fascination with TV and writing skills. And his love for hip hop stems from being a break dancer at a young age. While being a part of Rhapsody, Oliver had the opportunity to interview the biggest hip hop artists at the time. Rhapsody gave Canadian hip hop artists exposure to others who weren't familiar with the underground scene. Oliver explains the importance of Rhapsody to Canadian hip hop and how it helped get it to the next level. Canadian hip hop, uh, much without much music, um, it wouldn't be to the level where it's at today, right? I mean, obviously, you know, you, you you build, you start, and you build, and the next generation takes it another level, right? But for for Canadian hip hop back then, when when I started, it was still very underground. It was it was a music and culture that was not understood by the masses. Uh, they sort of saw hip hop as uh, as misogynistic, as sexist, uh, 
uh, at some saw it even as racist right, who didn't understand the music. Um, and, and this was a big corp and a lot of corporations saw that they didn't see the, the viability of rap music or hip hop. They didn't see uh, um, how much influence it had on culture. And, and, and for them, bottom line is they didn't see how much money hip hop could generate. Right. So it was just a, you know, it's a passing fad. It's just hip hop. I mean, like you look at the time that rap city was on, like they get no, I got no love. My show was on at four o'clock. Who's home at four o'clock except anybody who loved hip hop. They ran home after school or had their VCR, ta- uh, their VCR tape set up to tape rap city. But you know, you look at where it was positioned, where, where the show was positioned. Um, the, the powers that be didn't really respect the music, um, but the hip hop culture that, you know, the, the kids out there, um, I would get letters from Vancouver, from New Brunswick, and they would just, you know, just love the culture and they, they wouldn't have any exposure to anything else in their communities. Or, like, you know, you know, you like kids in New Brunswick who just thought, you know, who wanted to be start emceeing. They didn't know what was going on in Vancouver. Right? They didn't know what was going on in Alberta. Right. Until they watched much music. And they said, oh, we got artists here. Like we don't have to. It's not just in the States where the hip hop is blowing up. It's we got people across the country that are doing stuff. So, you know, being a part of that, yeah, it was, it was, it was special. College radio and much music were first to help local artists. Toronto had its first Black-owned radio station titled Flow 93.5 in 2001. Nicole Jolly, daughter of Denim Jolly, was Flow's vice president at the time. Nicole speaks about her dad's motives for pushing a Black-owned radio station to the CRTC. You know, college radio's absolutely incredible it's amazing it's such a great training ground for so many people but it's not commercial radio and and my dad's attitude was kind of like you know this is bs why can't we have a radio station we need one in fact there were mandates on some of the commercial stations not to play black music so it just seemed you know lately in 2020 we've been hearing a lot about living in a world of white supremacy and this was another area, radio was another area where it was, um, you know, if you were in the know, kind of blatant. If, you, if you're not intentional, if you didn't think about it, you're just like, oh, yeah, I guess it's normal. But when you stop to think about it, it's like, what? You don't have a black radio station? So it was his mission, I think, more from um, an activism standpoint and an equity standpoint to blink, bring black radio to Canada. And that's why he was so persistent. And that's why he didn't give up until he got that license. Today, Flow continues to play music for local artists under its new name, 98.7 FM. Let me write you 